for me. Uh, good, good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Um, glad to have y'all here as we continue our semester. We're in the we're in the theology of the church for our second week, and so, uh, so this is this is I love the email that went out. This is a really practical week looking at looking at church leadership, looking at church membership. What does all of that mean, and what does that mean scripturally? So that's that's a it's really going to be this is going to be a really cool night. I did give Jay some amount of harassment for going to four pages on the handout. Uh, and, but you see, we didn't increase the font size, so that way it's still almost unreadable. So y'all, y'all should should be, at least take comfort in that, right? It's four pages of a very small font. But uh, if you if you're not, I guess we got Slido up. Okay. Um, if if you uh, have brought a smartphone or a tablet, if you want to log into Slido.com, or or just shoot this barcode, and our Slido room tonight is one one two three eight one seven. And what that allows you to do is ask a question, or if you or or like a question, right? If other people have asked it, and that'll take it up to the top, um, so we can uh, so we can address those in the uh, in the Q and A. And I don't think we've got any announcements, right? We, we good? All right, well, let's pray and get started. Father God, we are thankful. We're thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, um, thankful for your word, Father, the certainty that we have in it, that, that we can trust it. And so, Father, find it faithfully taught tonight, rightly divided, um, and, and this is an offering to you and a gift to the church. And so, Father, let your spirit be with us to see what is in the word and change us. Change us, Father. Do not let us be the same people that walked in that walk out because we've encountered your truth. That should always make us more like Jesus. And Father, let it be so tonight. Uh, bless Jay as he teaches. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian. Good to have you with us tonight. And so, yes, a four-page handout. Uh, you'll see the reason why. Uh, hopefully, that'll keep me from going as long, uh, simply because I wanted to be able to put some things there for precision of language. But uh, we have covered a lot. We are in, I believe, week 26 of 32. Uh, so if you've been with us, uh, understand Brian and I are covering the content that you usually get in four semesters in seminary uh, in your systematic theology classes. And so uh, the longer we've gone, I was looking back at some of our earlier handouts that were a lot shorter. Um, and so we've been trying to cram in a lot, a lot of chapters, but uh, you guys have tracked with us well and we're excited. So we've got this week and one more uh, on the theology of the church. Uh, and uh, then we'll continue to, to move all the way towards the things of last, uh, the, the uh, doctrine of last things. So so I want to pick up where we left off uh, last week um, with uh, the doctrine of the church, the nature of the church, uh, our definition, our working definition. The local church is a community of regenerated believers. We're going to talk about that tonight when it comes to membership. Who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we all have in common. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. Again, that's tonight's topic as well. They gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the spirit, dis disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to, God's or to the world for God's glory and for their joy. So where that sometimes translates itself, very practically speaking, is found in a Facebook post put up by one of our church members, Chrissy Jensen. She, I believe, is passing this along. But instead of that being the definition of what people look for in a church, this is the definition. We're new to town and looking for a suggestion for a new church. I'm looking for a church that has really great parking, but not too many parking rules. It must have excellent coffee, none of that off-the-shelf creamer stuff. It needs music that's good, preferably with some celebrity musician on stage each week. 
I like it if the worship leader wears skinny jeans and a little hat and maybe some tattoos, but it can't be fog machine trendy or too loud. I'm looking for a funny pastor who really teaches, like actually from the Bible, but who can do it in a super entertaining way that doesn't make me feel bad, but not overly good either. I like comfortable chairs with armrests so the people next to me don't get too close. This is my favorite one. I want a youth group that teaches my kids all the stuff I don't want to teach them, but that doesn't teach them what I don't want them to know about yet. I was a youth pastor for 13 years. I've had lots of parents like that. I want a children's church that has plenty of room for all the kids, but it's not overcrowded classrooms and that doesn't ask for volunteers. That's another favorite of mine. I want them to serve great gluten-free, dye-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, paleo snacks for my kids served immediately upon arrival so that they are still hungry for lunch by the time I pick them up for class. I like greeters who know my name before I arrive. I'd like the church to be in a location that's convenient for me, but not in a huge building because that's not how I want them to use my money other people give them. (laughs) Did you catch that last part? Also, any rude comments will be deleted, all right? So there you go. We know that the Bible has a standard for what the church is and what it should do, and yet sometimes, right, in our consumeristic world, we think something else about the church altogether. And so tonight, we're gonna talk about how the church is organized, we're gonna talk about the leaders in the church, we're gonna look at key biblical principles, we're gonna talk about male-female roles in the church, we're gonna talk about membership, Uh, and why it matters and why we have that at the church at Station Hill. So we're gonna cover a lot of ground. Again, I've put a lot of this down because Brian and I have talked about this before. Precision of language is important, especially when it comes to theology. And so I don't want you guys walking away saying, I think I heard Jay say this. I would rather you look back, right, and, and, and see what I said. And more importantly, read those scripture texts that go along with it. So we're going to be looking at, at several of those tonight as well. But when it comes to church governance, uh, which is the way a church is organized, the way it's led, it's sometimes also called church polity, churches are organized and governed in a variety of different ways. So we need to first of all note this. This is not a major doctrine that affects anybody's salvation right? You're not going to hell if you go to a church that's governed in a way that's different than this one is. Uh, That's not what we're talking about here. But it's also important in that it impacts the health and the mission of churches. So we need to give careful consideration to biblical principles. Part of the genius of the church is that God gives us these biblical principles, but you're able to apply them in different cultural settings and different contexts. So we can contextualize church leadership so that an underground house church in China and a mega church in Korea and uh, an ethnic church in downtown Nashville, Tennessee off Nolensville Road, right, are all biblically churches and all operate under the same principles yet are able to fit the gospel, contextualize the gospel into the culture in which they are placed and be able to organize church to do all of these things in the definition in the box that we just looked at a moment ago. Now, I would argue that some forms of church governments follow more closely to New Testament principles than others. So there are forms of governance in leading your church that are more pure or less pure. Obviously, I think the the more pure, the closer we get to biblical principles, the better off we are. Uh, And so we're going to look at those tonight. As a matter of fact, as I begin to teach through this, again, we flip back and forth and look at a lot of scripture, but there are a key section of scriptures that come coming up over and over again. So we're just going to go to this passage and spend some time in it tonight uh, to set us up. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
This is Paul, of course, teaching Timothy, his Padawan, his uh, mentee, his protege in the faith. Uh, as Paul has passed the baton of leadership of the churches in Asia Minor to Timothy, in particular the, the church at Ephesus where Timothy is the pastor. Now you'll remember that Timothy was younger than Paul. Uh, Timothy wasn't identical to Paul, which is something that should encourage each one of us uh, to know that God uses different types of leaders in the church. We know Paul was bold. Uh, we know t uh, Paul coached Timothy to be more bold. In other words, Timothy was more timid uh, than Paul was. Uh, we know uh, that Timothy had a different skill set than Paul in many ways, and yet Paul knew that Timothy was the man that God needed to lead his church. And so Paul writes from his first Roman imprisonment in probably about t uh, 62 or 63 AD, uh, and he knows Timothy has a big challenge in front of him. Uh, I was able to be at the biblical side of Ephesus just a little over a month ago, uh, and it is an impressive city to this day. The ruins of the huge theater there, uh, what used to be a port, it's all silted in now, so you can't even see the Aegean Sea uh, from where you stand in Ephesus. But during the first century, that port came right there. Uh, impressive houses, basically mansions of their day that they have unearthed there. Uh, huge public buildings and public works. But in this city, the gospel needed to take root. And so Timothy had some important tasks before him. And so Paul tells him about the kind of leaders the church needs to have. So beginning in chapter three, verse one, he writes this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that word aspire means literally to stretch out. In other words, anybody who's ever been in any position of leadership knows it will stretch you. As I've shared with you before my testimony, I thought I understood church before I had my first little pack of junior high boys at 19 years old, right? That stretched me to grow in my faith. I thought I knew about preaching until I became the pastor of the church of Station Hill. And all of a sudden I had to prepare a sermon what feels like every three days, because that's the way it is. It's the day before Sunday, it's Sunday, it's the day after Sunday, and then you do it all over again. It stretches you when you're in any position of leadership. So that's what that word aspire means. If anyone aspires to the task of overseer, he desires a noble task. So it's a good thing, Paul tells Timothy, right? That's a godly thing to desire to be used of God to lead his people in an oversight capacity. We'll talk about the words overseer, elder, pastor, how they're interchangeable in the New Testament, but that's what that means. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. That word means newly planted or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, which what was the devil's great sin, right? It was his pride. He wanted to be God. And so pride is what Paul is talking about there. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. So four key roles of leaders, right? That Paul kind of outlines for us in this passage. Number one, they are to lead under the authority of Christ. And that's important. Jesus is the head of the church, period. This is not my church, the church of Station Hill. People will shorthand sometimes say, right? Well, you know, I go to Jay's church. No, nope. <laughs> you don't, right? It's not my church. 
I may be the pastor who founded it, started it, but I'm not, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus and Jesus is alone. So we always lead under the authority of Christ. Number two, they are to care for the body of Christ. Just you think about everybody, how it needs nurture and care in the same way the body of Christ needs the same thing. And it's the role of the overseer, the elder, the pastor to provide that. Number three, they are to teach the word of Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. You'll see, and when we get to deacons in a moment, that a lot of the qualifications are the same. But the only qualification that is not a character qualification is the ability to teach. And notice it doesn't say like the Facebook post, post you got to be a funny teacher. Uh, you've got to be like a skilled orator. It doesn't say any of those things, right? But you have to be able to teach the word faithfully. There's a reason for that. Elders and overseers have to consistently be teaching. Do you know why? Because when you teach the word of God, it keeps you connected deeply to the word of God. It keeps you humble. It keeps you honest. And so a teacher in any capacity, right, has to be able to master the subject in a way that they can present it to their audience. And so that's why I believe the one qualification that is not a character qualification, all the other qualifications have to do with character, not competency. The one for an elder, an overseer, a pastor is to be able to teach the word of God. And then number four, they are to model the character of Christ. If you look at this list, it's really more about character. And then you begin to think about what kind of pastors are celebrated in our world today. Are they celebrated for their character or for their competency? By and large, for their competency. They're incredible leaders. They're gifted communicators. They're visionaries, right? These are the things we hear about the pastors of the big, big churches, all of these kind of things. And yet, the weight in the New Testament on the faithful pastor, the faithful overseer elder, is much more heavily on character than anything else. There's a calling, right? A healthy ambition to serve the church under Christ. There is an above reproach kind of character and nature to the way they go about life. They, they see their home as a center of ministry and they lead their wife and their children well. They are competent in their maturity and in their culture around them. They have a reputation, a good reputation in the community. Uh, that they are in. All of those things are important, Paul says, as we model the character of Christ as elders, as leaders in the church. And so when you begin to look at that list, you're like, well, man, who, who could possibly be all of those things? Is Paul saying, as an overseer, I have to be perfect in all of these areas? No, right? That would run contrary to everything else we see in the New Testament about the character of man, because overseers, elders, pastors, they are human. But what is it teaching us? It's teaching us that there should be progress in character towards Christ's likeness. As Paul once said, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's, that's what's key uh, for men who are going to be elders and overseas because ultimately the health of the church depends on the health of its leaders. I have yet to see a church that outruns the health, the spiritual health of the leadership uh, in the church which is an incredible weight, right, that, that I, I carry and that, that our team carries. Um, it's something to ponder on a consistent basis, but, but we know. Uh, so there is, right, honor and dignity in being a leader in the church. That's a good thing. Paul says, aspire towards it, reach out for it, desire that. That's a noble and good thing. But at the same time, with that responsibility, right, comes this challenge. And that's to be sure that our character is reflecting that of Christ. So that's the qualifications for the overseers. Uh, John Stott calls elders servant leaders. I think that's really helpful. 
because deacons, he then calls, leading servants. And I love that overlap because there's a connection in the church. They're not exactly the same office, but there's a connection. So let's read the qualifications for deacons, uh, beginning in verse eight. Uh, And so it says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what do deacons number one do? Number one, they meet needs according to the word. Number two, they support the ministry of the word. And number three, they unify the body of God around the word. And so deacons have an incredibly important role. Now, if you grew up like I did in our Baptist churches, a lot of deacons were treated like elders by default uh, because a lot of Baptist churches historically have a single elder model in which you have the senior pastor as the sole elder. And so everybody kind of looks to the deacons to kind of be this quasi elder group of people. We'll talk about deacons more in a minute and that specific role. It's why on Uh, our Saturday night service on Easter weekend when I was talking about Mary Magdalene and I misspoke accidentally and I said, Mary Magdalene, uh, all we know about her was that she had been afflicted and tormented by seven deacons. Everybody roared in laughter because we've all been around, right? Deacons who are more demon-like than Christ-like before. Uh, And so my dad has been chairman of the deacons at my home church and a deacon uh, since I was a kid. Uh, And so I I know uh, the battles that they go through and what they deal with. But again, what always is in the biblical model, sometimes that's what we have to aspire to. And that's what Paul is telling us here. And so big picture when it comes to elders and deacons is that church leadership is number one designed by God. This was God's idea for the ordering of his church. Number two, it's a display of his glory. In other words, when God's churches are running God's way, it all holds up his glory. We don't get the glory. Leaders should not seek glory. The glory belongs to God alone. But when a church functions and operates through a plurality of leadership in the way that God designed it to, it gives glory to God who designed and put these principles into place. And church leadership is number three, totally dependent on the gospel. All of these leaders, what we share in common, right, is, is that we have all been recipients of the gospel. We all recognize we're sinners. We have been saved by the grace of Jesus. And now by God's grace, as Paul tells Timothy many times, we have been entrusted this ministry. Again, the church isn't ours. The ministry isn't even ours, but it has been entrusted to us to be stewards of the ministry. And so we know the elders are are servant leaders, deacons are leading servants. And why does all this matter? Well, that's the end of chapter three, verse 14, where Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, talking to Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and this is really the thesis for the entire letter of 1 Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So why does it matter that God's church is ordered by the leaders in the way that God designed it? Because it is a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. 
And if the leaders aren't holding that up, that's a great word picture for us, right? Pillars, buttresses, right? That we fortify the truth by the way that we live together, by the way that we organize as a church, by the way that we carry out ministry. It matters. Bottom line, what will happen to the church if it imitates its leaders is a question all of us should ask. Because as go the leaders, as so goes the church. So verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so this is the reason why, right? Because it points to the greatness of the gospel of what Jesus has done uh, in and through us, that he takes all of us, right? Imperfect people, saves us, redeems us, and calls some of us in the church to leadership positions in the church for the strengthening of the church uh, as a pillar and buttress of the truth. So with that being said, back to the handout where we shorthand some of this, but I just wanted to spend some time, man, level setting uh, in 1 Timothy 3 because it's so important to this conversation. So church officers, a church officer is someone who's been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Now, the first office that we need to talk about for a moment is the office of apostle. There's debate. Do apostles still exist today or do they not? Well, in a broad sense, the word apostle means messenger or sometimes like a pioneer missionary, right? Uh, An apostle brings the gospel into new places. And so in a broad sense, you could argue, yeah, you know, you could use that term. However, in the New Testament, it refers specifically to those who had a unique authority to found and govern the early church because number one, they had seen the risen Christ personally. And number two, they were appointed by Christ as an apostle. So if you'll remember, of course, you had the disciples and then you had Paul. Paul, he met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. And if you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, and as one to abnormally born, he also appeared to me and appointed me as an apostle. And so you've got the original disciples and Paul who have that apostolic designation in the New Testament. So some people use this word today for effective church planners or evangelists, but Grudem argues, and I'll argue as well, it seems inappropriate and unhelpful to do so because it confuses people about the degree of spiritual authority that somebody can have today. So there's some traditions who they will call like their big time pastors or evangelists apostles, right? Um, And so I'm not gonna go pick a fight with them, but we're also not gonna give that label to anybody in our church. Can we be in agreement about that? Because I think it confuses people. And quite honestly, sometimes titles are attempted to be used by man for their own glory, uh, to elevate themselves and to, to claim some level of spiritual uh, you know, authority that uh, I think is spurious and that, uh, that they don't always have. So we'll just put the, the term apostle right uh, on the shelf saying it was reserved uh, for those people who were uh, eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ appointed by Jesus as apostles. So that leaves us with these two primary officers, uh, uh, offices of elder and deacon. Uh, The term pastor used in Ephesians 4.11 literally means to shepherd in the original language, overseer, which we used in this passage, places like Acts 20 use it as well, and bishop, episcopos, right? Philippians 1.1, they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So those words are used in various ways in various places, but they all clearly mean the same thing if you line them all up side by side. There is a consistent pattern of a plurality of elders in the New Testament. So in places like Acts chapter 14, right, they appointed, they agreed. Acts chapter 20, right, Miletus, where uh, Paul says, I called the Ephesian elders, plural. 
I got to stand at Miletus just a few weeks ago and read that passage as Paul wept, right, over his parting with the Ephesian elders as he left the continent uh, of Asia Minor for the very last time. It was an emotional moment to read that text and to realize how much Paul poured into these men, how much he invested in them and how he was entrusting to them, right, the work of the kingdom and that entire part of the world at that time. And so, but there were elders, there were multiple elders present. And James 5, 14, it says, if we're sick, we should call for the elders, plural, uh, there to pray over us. So elders, primarily two big buckets, as we've talked about, are to govern or lead the church and to teach the church. They have to be biblically qualified uh, by their consistent, mature Christ-like character. And uh, that question about they are to be the husband of one wife means they are not to be polygamists. Uh, there are several reasons why that doesn't mean or disqualify someone who has been divorced or married before, who's been widowed. First of all, if you notice the entire list of qualifications, Paul is always talking about their present status, not their past life. So this is what you are to be in character right now. It's true. As people would come to faith in Christ in the early church, we would naturally understand that there would be people who had probably been married multiple times before, but now they have been saved and they've been redeemed. They've been changed. And so Paul says your past, whatever your past is, right? Now, if you are in Christ, doesn't disqualify you if your character is now Christ-like and you are pursuing him. The second thing is, and this is maybe the most obvious one that's easy to miss, Paul could have simply said, an elder should have only been married once, but he doesn't use that language. And of course, the third reason is, is well, that would disqualify widowers whose wives had simply passed away as well, when clearly there are many widowers in the church uh, who are gifted and who are called uh, as elders and deacons. Uh, and so uh, what Paul is referring to there is the past, past, uh, practice of polygamy. Uh, and while very not very common in our culture, uh, I was teaching in Kenya uh, several years ago, training pastors. I had one of the pastors pull me aside after uh, the session was over and say, pastor, I've, I've got a problem. I said, well, what is that? He said, I have men in my church who have multiple wives, right? And I was like, oh, that's not one they taught me about in seminary, like what to counsel to give, right? What to do in this situation. But it was actually quite fascinating because it's not what you think it was. It wasn't that these guys just wanted to collect a bunch of wives, right? Like a harem. Instead, what had happened was a neighboring tribe had come many times, right? And it killed many of the men in that village. And so some of these men had taken on the wives and their children in order to care for them and provide for them because they had no other way. And so all of a sudden you're like, whew, okay, wow, this is getting deep in a hurry, right? As you sit down. And so what, what actually ended up being a, a very in, incredible Holy Spirit moment was we talked about the fact that really what needs to happen from here moving forward in that village is that his church needs to be responsible, right, for caring for those, those widows and their children. It's the church's job to rise up, you know, uh, and what these men were trying to do in their individual strength, right, is better done by the collective body uh, of believers and is a better witness to that community in that way than polygamy uh, being the answer. But that was an issue uh, in their culture and it was an issue in some cultures today and that's why that's there. Uh, number three, the role of deacon. If pastor, elders, or servant leaders, then deacons are the leading servants in the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter six. I wanna look at this passage as well. Now, the actual term, right, deacon is not here, but the term for serving, diakonos, is uh, in Acts chapter six. And most theologians do agree, right? This is the genesis of the idea of the deacon uh, in the life of the church. And so it says in Acts chapter six, verse one, now in those days, 
When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek speakers, the the Greek cultured people, rose against the Hebrews, the Jewish speaking people, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they're passing out food. uh, And so what's taking place is is that the the Greek speakers, right, the, the, the Greek widows are being neglected. They're not getting food. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we would give up preaching the word Word of God to serve, there's the word, serve diakonos, tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so this is a remarkable scene to me. Because for me, if I'm a leader, somebody presents to me an issue, and this happens often in our church, right? Hey, there's something, pastor, we need to be doing. And I listen and, and you begin to hear, is it a legitimate need? Yeah, there were widows who weren't receiving food, right? This is a need. And the church, we know, James, brother of Jesus himself said, James one twenty seven, pure religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So yes, we are called to look after uh, orphans and widows. So yeah, we need to take care of these widows. So for me as a pastor, in my earthly wisdom, my, my first response is sometimes, man, but I have so many responsibilities. And there's so many things I have to do to take on one more thing seems like a lot. And so for me, it's, it's kind of a binary. It's either, yeah, we, I, we need to do this. I need to help or no. But in biblical wisdom, I think guided by the Holy Spirit, the apostles said, you know what our primary ministry is? It's gotta be the ministry of the word. People have to have the truth. And, and you think about the early church, remember just over in Acts 2, at the end of Acts 2, 3,000 people were added to the 150 new believers. Do you know what it takes to disciple 3,000 baby believers? Do you know how much time it takes them? And again, this is first generation. So the New Testament isn't complete yet. You know, there's not Bible studies available online. They can just download. It's one-on-one or one-on-a-few discipleship as as the the disciples are going back to the Old Testament, showing the new believers how the fulfillment, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. You know what it's like to dig around in the Old Testament and spend time in God's word. It's hard work. And so they tell the people, and this, the first time I read this, I remember as a young man, I really stumbled across this. I was like, man, this seems harsh to me. No, we're not going to wait on tables, right? We got to preach. I was like, well, that feels a little arrogant, doesn't it? And then I realized, no, that's biblical wisdom because they knew their calling. But again, the spirit led them to do what? To raise up other men, to raise up these servant leaders in the church who could help in the distribution of food. So, and and there's qualifications. And again, they're character qualifications, aren't they? Pick seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nancanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas and the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Do you see how seriously they took that? It wasn't like, hey, you uh, junior leaders in the church, right? All right, get over there and and, and start your food kitchen, right? No, they, they... commissioned them just like they would missionaries going out. Like they laid hands on them because they knew how important this ministry was. And so they validated the importance of that ministry. And what happened, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
How hard do you think it was to win a Jewish priest to faith in Jesus Christ? You think that took some gospel conversations? You think that took some serious unpacking? Yes, and so the point is, is the Holy Spirit raised up this group of deacons in the church to be able to serve the body. In the same way today, and that's, we'll talk about it more in a minute, but that's why our deacons at Station Hill and our Brentwood Baptist family, they are not a decision-making board because we don't see deacons making decisions in scripture. We see deacons serving the body of Christ. And so what a beautiful model for us. And oh, by the way, do some of these names come back around in Acts? Stephen, anybody heard of him? All right, becomes the first martyr, powerfully preaches. Philip leads the, the Ethiopian to Christ, who will then go back and, and convert right, the continent of, 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 of Africa to Christ. So, you know, God uses these men in significant ways, but their first steps in ministry were by serving widows, by simply serving the body. And so what a great example for us to see uh, how God began that ministry of deacons in the early church. So deacons as well must be biblically qualified and willing to minister to the needs of the body through acts of service and care. Uh, in Romans 16.1, we'll talk about this in a little bit as well. Phoebe is called a deaconess, which is a word that can simply mean servant. Uh, and yet it seems like in the New Testament, right? Male deacons, female deacons, the door seems open to both, uh, at least in the language that's employed there. Uh, and so, because uh, women don't have the office of teaching, as we'll talk about as well, uh, preaching over a congregation, uh, that door seems opened by Paul in Romans 16.1. So the selection of officers. In the New Testament, it's common for officers to be selected by the entire congregation. So again, you see, they appointed. Uh, they knew the number there in Acts chapter one of how many uh, there were who were believers. So a point, by the way, can also be translated install. So there are some hierarchical church organizations and traditions that will argue, no, 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 the Pope or the bishops or whatever, they appoint, they unilaterally pick people. Well, understand that word appoint doesn't always mean I want Brian on my team or I want Brian over here. It means they installed. So the congregation decided, but the leader, of course, did the official act of installing that leader. Final authority in the church, we need to remember this, doesn't rest with any one group within the church, but with the church as a whole. We are the church. And so the authority rests with the body of Christ. The leaders are there to serve the body, to edify it and to build it up. But the idea that the leaders alone are responsible for decision-making is actually unbiblical because everyone in the body of Christ is responsible uh, for where the church goes. So there's wider accountability when the church is involved. It's interesting that if you study church history, we'll get into that next semester, false doctrine is almost always first adopted by theologians. Why? Because some theologians, not all, but some, the worst case, uh, the worst kind in my opinion, instead of the best kind, are, are removed from the, the work of the day-to-day -day church. They sit in the ivory tower of academia, right? They begin to write and thoughts and they're influenced by the world. And so almost always heresy comes into the church in false doctrine through theologians. Then those theologians train who? Pastors. And then, right, the very last place that it reaches is the laity. Why? Because it's the church, God's people, who are active every day, opening up their Bibles for devotions, sharing the gospel with their neighbors, serving faithfully, and usually the laity are the best at saying, mm, that's not what God's word says. 
And so be encouraged by that and know that that's the way that God's church works best. Government, any form of governance, leadership, right, works best when it has the consent of those governed. We see that principle established in the Old Testament and it runs right through the new. So that's a little bit about church officers. Let's talk about forms of church government. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this. There are three basic big categories that churches organize themselves around. The first one, is that what we would call the Episcopalian uh, form of governance. The Roman Catholic Church uses this, right? It is hierarchical. An archbishop or pope, all this oversees many bishops who then oversee rectors or vicars who then oversee the church. So that's your old top-down structure. Every year, when the Southern Baptist Convention rolls around in June, I spend time explaining to people that that's not the way we operate. People think, right, we have like some pope who sits in a chair in downtown Nashville and tells, you know, the, the state conventions who then tell the local associations who then tell the pastors what to do because this form is so embedded in history. You know, it's been around uh, since the rise of the Roman Catholic Church in the, the fourth and fifth centuries uh, that, that it is, is viewed as, well, that's the way all churches are, right? Wrong. <laughs> that's simply one form of church governance. The second one would be called Presbyterian where each local church elects elders to what they call a session. And that group of elders oversees the local church, but they also make up what's called a presbytery, hence the word Presbyterian, that then oversees several churches in a region. So you kind of have the elders going both directions. These elders are elected in a Presbyterian uh, church, and then they oversee the church, but then they work with other uh, sessions from other churches to oversee the area. And then most of you in this room are the most familiar with number three, congregational in which the congregation has the primary say. Now there's a lot of variations on this. As I mentioned, a lot of Baptist churches historically have been single elder. Uh, we have the senior pastor and the congregation votes. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of churches and more so all the time moving to a plurality of elders. Some of them operate, uh, a lot of non-denominational churches have basically a corporate board. Uh, they have a board of people selected from the church and they make all the decisions uh, and they have uh, all of the property rights and those kind of things. Uh, there have been a handful that have tried a pure democracy over the years in which everyone has an equal say. Um, usually that breaks down at some point along the way. Uh, and then there are those who claim, and this is usually some of your, your very charismatic churches, that they have no government but the Holy Spirit. Uh, and again, those churches don't usually stay together for very long before there are multiple splits because the Holy Spirit tells everybody something different about the color of the carpet or how loud the music needs to be uh, or who gets the best parking spot. So those are, but those are the general categories of the forms of church government. Now, let's walk through some key biblical principles. Now, Brian mentioned, was teasing me about my four-page handout, but let me tell you, the church has asked me to chair a church governance task force. And so what you're getting is my shorthand of a project I've been working on for about 18 months. Uh, and so I'm loaded for bear. I'm so excited to finally get to teach on this stuff because uh, I've been holed up in my office and working with a, a team on that for a long time. But I do, do wanna give these to you. And seriously, we've had to work through these as a team to level set as we try to prepare our church for its future, our big church family. So church polity, that's the way that a local church organizes to fulfill its mission. Very early, the church in Acts organized to steward their time, talent, treasure, and testimony under the lordship of Christ. That's what organization does. I know if you were like I was and as a kid and somebody, mom and dad were like, we gotta go to the church business meeting on Wednesday night. I mean, it was like, oh, because as a kid, I didn't understand why that was important. But it is important that every church has some sort of order. Why? Because we are to steward what God has entrusted to us. And so we don't need chaos, right? We don't need dictatorship. We need, I love, Brian really gave me this term, spirit-led order. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. 
where Paul says in this passage, but all things should done decently and in order. Because God isn't a God of disorder, right? You look at his handiwork in creation, you look at the way he planned redemption, obviously God's got it all covered. So in the same way, his church should bear evidence of spirit-led order. Now there are those of us who veer towards order. We want everything locked down and controlled. Uh, most of you had to take uh, the place test, the uh, place assessment. When you became part of our church, you did a personality profile. How many C personalities we got in the room? Want to admit that? Yeah. See, Brian, thank you. Brian Hanson, put that hand up. Yeah, yeah. You people love things orderly. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Dave Johnson. I know, okay. I know some of you. And yes, you like, you love the order part of that, right? We have any high I personalities in the room? Your people, people outgoing, fun loving? Yes. There's like three of you, okay? Explains, I mean, let's be honest, coffee house theology and I personalities, right? Not a great combination. So you're dying sitting there. But, but the I personalities, right? They're, they're people, they're outgoing. They're, they're, they, they are the ones a lot of times you're prone to say, let's follow the spirit. Wherever he leads, I'll go, right? So the reality is no matter our personality, no matter our hardwiring, we need to do both things in the church. We need godly principles to order around, but we also need to be sensitive to the spirit. And so the Bible shows us how to do both of those things. Uh, and so orderliness is commanded in Colossians 2.5, and it's rebuked when it's lacking in Scripture. Number two, a survey of the New Testament reveals that the early churches were congregational in their polity. Congregationalism locates the authority of the church in each local body of believers. Every year, again, when the Southern Baptist Convention rolls around, lots of leaders remind the people, including myself, the headquarters of the SBC is not in Nashville. The headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention is in every local church that participates with the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's true. That's exactly what we believe. So in heaven, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ultimate leadership's in heaven, that's right. But it's expressed through the local body of believers. No person or organization is above it or over it except Jesus. Each congregation is ultimately accountable to God. So we can't ever say, well, a bishop made us do this, right? And pin it on somebody else. Instead, we are accountable to God. A congregational approach to church government honors the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers and the authority of sola scriptura. In other words, every church is responsible to search out scriptures and say, are we leading our church in a way that's consistent with scripture? Number three, a type of representative congregationalism is biblically defensible and wisely warranted. That's what we have in our church, by the way. The weakness, this is from Gene Getz, I have seen in congregationalism almost always concerns church members who are involved in making decisions who are not mature. Translation, the problem isn't with the system, the problem is with immaturity. And so I believe, right, a good system with bad people will yield bad outcomes. A bad system with good people uh, can still have good outcomes, right? But we want both things to align when at all possible. We want mature, godly people running a system that is as close to biblical principles as we can get. Uh, uh, Millard Erickson says this in his systematic theology. In a very large church, many members may not have sufficient knowledge of the issues and candidates for office to make well-informed decisions, and large congregational meetings might be impractical. Here, a greater use of the representative approach will be necessary. Even in this situation, however, the elected servants must ever be mindful that they are responsible to the whole body. So our church governance system is modified congregational. 
in which you guys in the month of November in just a couple of weeks are getting ready to help select trustees who serve as a representative body of our eight campuses, 12 men and women who are chosen from among, among the membership who make up that, those small group of people who are informed about the issues because there is just way too much going on across our eight campuses and almost 12,000 members and about 200 plus staff members for any, right, for, for every person in the pews to be familiar with all the time to be able to vote on everything. So that's the direction that we have chosen to go. When I first came to Brentwood, I was actually hired in 2001, we had pure congregationalism, meaning that whoever showed up to the church business meeting voted and that's what we did. And we were a church about the size of Station Hill back then, about 1600 members. Do you know how many people showed up to business meetings? About 14. So yeah, 20 on a good night, right? Uh, on high attendance night. If the, the Wednesday night supper was really good, we'd have 20, right? And so what did that leave us in as a church? A precarious position. <laughs> because that group, small group of people could sway any vote. So we needed a different system to be employed. And that's why we use the system that we use now. Uh, there is a young man who is pastoring a church uh, over near Sparta, Tennessee. Brian and I are doing training for the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board of Pastors. And we'll have our second uh, round with these group of pastors tomorrow. <laughs> he told us at round one that when he took over the church, they had 60 members and 32 committees. <laughs> <laughs> they had a church that decided they were going to put a committee together for everything. I don't even know how you have that many committees, but you know, obviously part of his first job was to draw down those committees uh, because they had almost as many committees in the church as they had members. Nothing wrong with a committee, rightly ordered, rightly used. Uh, but obviously that church a long time ago had said, instead of making a decision, we're going to send it to a committee. Uh, you know, and so that can be a dangerous place to be as well. So that's the form of governance that we have chosen currently for our church. Number four, the Bible doesn't provide a specific template for the exact right way to do governance for a specific local church. So don't call your Presbyterian friends tomorrow and say, you guys got it wrong, all right? The biblical story on church leadership does not prescribe specific forms, only functions and directives. Each church organizes itself, taking into consideration its own unique context and situation. However, again, as we've talked about, the Bible is very specific about the character of those who serve as church leaders. Number five. Uh, in the early years of Christianity, spiritual leaders in local churches were identified as elders. As Paul and his missionaries expanded into areas heavily populated with Gentiles, spiritual leaders were also identified as overseers or bishops. The words are used interchangeably as we've talked about, but the two basic terms in the Bible to describe the overarching functions of elders, overseers are to manage, we might say lead, right, or steward, and to shepherd, which is a rich word picture in the Bible. The pastors that I work with, that Chris Blanton and I work with, Station Hill, West Franklin, Nolensville, one of the constant metaphors we're bringing up and working on, right, is how to shepherd people. Because it is an art, it is a calling, being a shepherd is important to what we do. Number seven, when Paul outlined these overarching functions for elders and overseers, he made this opportunity available to any man who desired this noble task and was qualified. We already have covered those qualifications. So uh, number eight is another shorthand version of those. And then number nine, the New Testament teaches and illustrates that when there's a plurality of leadership, someone does need to function as what we would call a first among equals. So you have James in the church at Jerusalem. You have Peter, you have Paul, Timothy at Ephesus. There is, however, and this is important, you might wanna underline and highlight this, no biblical defense for dictatorial, autocratic, or unaccountable ministry leadership. 
If you find yourself in a church with a pastor who is dictatorial, autocratic, or unaccountable, leave. And I'm telling you that as your pastor, right? There's no place for that. Pastors are supposed to be servant leaders. It doesn't mean that pastors don't have to make hard decisions. It doesn't mean I'm gonna make every decision that you agree with, okay? Let's be clear about that. But if I become any of those things, run and find a church that has a man who will shepherd you well and point you to the gospel. Let me say that very, very clearly. Um, then number 10, in the early years of the church, again, there was accountability for the elders and overseers among themselves, but also beyond the local ministry. I do love that you see, right, Paul calling out Peter in the book of Galatians. There, there was accountability among even that level of apostle, that level of leader, right? When they got off track, they weren't afraid to confront each other and to have hard conversations. In that case, uh, Paul felt like Peter was showing favoritism and wasn't afraid to tell him so, but to his face, not I posted it on Facebook, okay? Let's just go ahead and be clear about that. And then number 11, the Bible teaches that elders and overseers must maintain their priorities by delegating responsibilities to other qualified men and women who can assist them in managing the shepherding of the church. Vitally important, 2 Timothy 2.2, in Paul's last letter to Timothy, in the last letter we think he probably wrote, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust Note that Paul often said, God has entrusted ministry to me. Now he entrusted to others, right? Entrusted to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And this is one of the things that we're lacking in the church today. It's one of the most important things that we can do if you're a leader in any capacity in our church is to train another leader. If you're a life group leader, you train another life group leader. If you're a deacon, you train another deacon. If you're a pastor, you look for other men who you can raise up in the church to be pastors. And so one of the opportunities that we are missing is that often we're so focused on the moment we're in and our leadership and our challenges that we fail to equip and disciple the next generation. Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Timothy. You need to be led by someone who's more spiritually mature than you and you need to be leading someone because you're going to grow as you shepherd them and lead them and you're equipping the church for the next generation. So I pray that if you're a believer and you're in this room, you could answer that question tonight. Who's your Paul? Who's somebody that's leading you? And who's your Timothy? Who's that person that you are pouring into? Because that's really the secret sauce of how the church gets healthy and the church grows is when we're doing what I'd call 360 degree discipleship with people around us. All right, so with that, we come to the question of male-female roles in the church. And again, I, I put a significant amount here because I wanted you guys to see uh, the, our reasoning for where we stand on this issue because this is kind of one of the hot-button issues uh, in the church today. Uh, and so let's spend some time on this. Why not women pastors or elders? Well, let's be clear. Women are of equal worth to men and are an essential part of the local church. Based on God's designed order prior to the fall, that's important. Genesis 2, order, before sin in Genesis 3, and the clear teaching and example of the New Testament, the Bible permits women to serve in any role in the church with the exception of elder pastor. There's a whole list of scriptures there that support this, that walk you through what the Bible says about the role of women in the church. Genesis 1, all men and women created in the image of God, but created male and female. We are of equal worth, but we are not the same. And I don't know about you, but to that I say, hallelujah, right? I'm glad my wife is not just like me, right? And vice versa. 
And so that's important. That's a part of the beauty of God's design is the way that he designed us to complement one another. Throughout the storyline of scripture, I'm gonna shorthand this for time, right? But God uses women in significant roles, right? Some of our, our heroes in the faith, Exodus chapter one, Shipra and Pua, who had the courage to stand up to Pharaoh's command to kill all the baby boys. They refused to do so. And by the way, have you ever noticed the Bible doesn't bother to mention what Pharaoh it was? It was Ramses, huge in world terms, but we get the name of two obscure Hebrew midwives who we know and we celebrate today, Shipra and Pua. Why? because they were obedient to God. Deborah was raised up, right? Miriam was a prophetess. We know that. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus, we see that Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples, but all four gospels affirm that who got to be the first witnesses of the resurrection? Women, right? So Jesus included women in his followers. He allowed them to be his disciples, not part of the inner circle, right? But he allowed them in a time in which women were told, stay away from the Hebrew rabbis. They were allowed to follow him. We know women are present at Pentecost. Lydia was the first and influential convert at Philippi in the book of Acts. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, is the hostess of the house church and disciples the gifted Apollos together. Philip has four daughters who prophesy. Phoebe is listed, as we already mentioned, as a servant and a deaconess alongside of other important people in the church at Rome. We know in the book of Ephesians, the word headship is used which means ruler or head. Now this is important because the world will twist this definition, but this pattern of authority is not lording over, but loving leadership. Let me say that again. The headship that a male has in any role in the church or in his marriage or in the home is not lording over, but loving leadership. That is the biblical definition of that modeled after what? The love of Christ and his church. So in these passages in First and Second Timothy and Titus and in, in, uh, in First Corinthians where Paul is talking about the different roles within the church, he is saying all of that based on that depth of biblical understanding of what the Bible teaches about men and women. So number one, again, equal value to God and his church. So we absolutely must affirm the personal equality of man and woman as human beings in the image of God. In the world and sadly in the church, we have historically undervalued and underappreciated women. They should be affirmed, honored, celebrated for the unique and powerful way they reflect the glory of God. One of my spiritual heroes is my mother. She is a woman of God. Every morning when I got up as a little kid, she had her Bible open and she was praying and in God's word. My mom is a faithful servant. My wife, you know how incredible she is as she leads our foster and adoption ministry, as she has stretched me in lots of ways in my faith to pursue things that I don't think I would have had the courage to pursue on my own out of her own backstory. She is incredible. We have strong leaders in our church. Gail Haywood at the Brentwood campus was on the team that brought me here. I watched her. She's ministered to generations of people. Our longest tenured staff member was Gail Haywood over 40 years serving generations at the Brentwood campus. I was able to hire our first girls minister, Amy Jo Girardier at the Brentwood campus. She's now our women minister up there. We have Leanne Swords here. We affirm that God gifts women to be able to serve the local church. And so number two, we must make it a priority to preach and teach the value of women. They were regarded as inferior to men in the first century world into which Jesus came. The New Testament radically elevated the role of women in regard to human rights as disciples of Jesus and as full participants in the church. So people need to know that we are for women and attempts to subjugate or objectify women in church history, both then and now were sinful acts of broken men, not acts condoned by scripture. So let's be really, really clear about that. 
that prior to Jesus, you understand, women didn't have the right to vote, right? Women couldn't own property. In the first century world, right, women were demeaned in lots of ways. But it was because of Jesus and his followers who saw women as of equal value with men that women's rights as we know it exist today. And so understand that. And that's often totally overlooked by our secular culture. That without the Judeo-Christian understanding of, of uh, the equality and the imago dei of people, uh, that women wouldn't be where they are today in our culture. Sadly, of course, our culture often takes things too far, uh, as we know. But the reality is, is number three, that God designed and spirit-led order are important to the functioning of his church. And so order relates to function and role, not superiority. Let me say that again. Order relates to function and role, not superiority. So we intuitively, this kind of cracks me up, we understand this in other spheres of life, right? Every company has to have a CEO. Every team has to have a head coach. Everybody has to have somebody and the buck stops with them. And so we get that. But in the church, sometimes we're tempted to say, no, 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 we, we can all do all things equally, right? But so we need to be careful to not subvert or resist God's design in a way that's unbiblical, unhealthy, and unwise because it has spiritual consequences for the church. Number four, marriage and the church are designed to reflect God and mirror one another. Our God is consistent and unchanging. It's not logical that the two institutions he designed to work together as conduits for the gospel would have inconsistency in leadership. For example, if a married woman leads over a church in which her husband is a member, she has spiritual authority over him in the church, but not in their home. This would create tension, inconsistency, and potentially undermine the husband's role and responsibility as the spiritual leader in his home. Do you see the tension that's created there? God is consistent and unchanging. The home and the church are designed to reflect one another. So number five, God has and does use women in a variety of ways throughout the Bible and church history, but never as a pastor. Bottom line, search the pages of the New Testament, try to find a female pastor, and you won't. Women can fulfill a calling to Christian service in any other role. Simply put, no woman is ever identified as a priest or pastor in the Bible. Old Testament examples like Deborah, they're not normative, since God does in some cases set aside the usual order and necessary due to a lack of male leadership. The limited New Testament evidence for deaconesses and prophetesses still give no warrant for female ordination to the highest office in the church. In the New Testament, remember the deacons do not rule but serve, so the role of Phoebe is not a problem. Scripture teaches the equality of man and women, but it also teaches a basic pattern of functional order for the church that's grounded in creation. Now, number six, an overly rigid application of biblical principle is unnecessary and unwise. Translation, this is for the church and the home. We don't have a problem with a woman being president of the United States of America if she's the qualified person to be so. We don't have a problem with a woman being a CEO of a company, right? This is not designed to limit women in any, any way, but because of the unique nature of God's kingdom, God has applied these principles of authority in order to his church and home. And number seven, we have to hold to biblical authority on this issue. The church is under immense cultural pressure in the West to bend on the grounds of feminism. Churches have to be guided by biblical truth and not the shifting opinions of human cultures. This is one way that our church is a distinct counterculture community to our world. So unbiblical interpretations, they'll come and go. But the Bible maintains the same clear, consistent message of God's good design for male and female. Our senior pastor says the world isn't mad at us because we are different. It's mad at us because we are not different enough. All right. That was a lot, I know. But I wanted to be thorough on that issue. Uh, and you can imagine all of the reasons why. 
Uh, yet we know that we need to uphold what the Bible says about those rules. Uh, and so we attempt to do so to the best of our ability. So with that being said, let's talk for a minute about church membership. And so this is where all of us come in. We're all involved in all of this. Uh, but in particular, it's been interesting to me in my lifetime to see uh, the relative uh, shift towards it's not important to be a member of a church. For some people, it's, it's not important for me to be a part of a church at all. Right? But there are many, matter of fact, there are many churches today that don't even have membership. So why, why church membership? Well, first of all, let's make this clear. Membership in a local church is not the same as any other membership in an organization. This is not joining the Jelly of the Month Club. Right? This is not joining the Rotary Club. This isn't joining any other kind of organization because the church is a unique organization. As a matter of fact, it runs by organizational principles, but really the church is an organism. It is the body of Christ. And so church membership is how the world knows who represents Jesus. That's the best shorthand I could give it. You may want to highlight that or underline it. The church membership is how the world knows, right, who represents Jesus. Because you can run around out there and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you have no body of other Christians listening to your testimony, verifying that you are a believer, verifying the fruit that is in your life, you could just be out saying, I'm a Christian, Right. And so many people do. And so regenerate church membership means that we only accept those as members who have made a profession of faith in Jesus and who have been baptized as an outward sign of their inward commitment. We agree together in our church on a statement of faith that summarizes the core doctrines of scripture. For us, that's the Baptist faith and message. So regenerate church membership is important. So not only do we have church membership, but actually we have church membership that verifies we have a moment in which we have heard your testimony, right? And then you have been baptized as that outward sign of your inward faith. Uh, when I was working with churches in Northeast England, one of my good friends uh, received an appointment to a church, very prestigious church, right on the high street of a very famous town in England. And as he took over that church, they had a board, right, who helped make decisions for the congregation. And he discovered that out of the eight board members, five of them were not even followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was prestigious to be a part of the church. It was even more prestigious to be on the church board, right? And so he was like, bro, my first order of business is to get my church board saved, <laughs> right? That's one place to start a church revitalization work, you know? And so we sometimes overlook that and we need to, to recognize that, that, that not everyone who says they're saved are saved, but we do our best as a congregation, right? To hear a credible testimony uh, and to see that outward sign of faith. So why membership matters? Let me give you five quick reasons. Number one, the Bible establishes the local church as your highest authority on earth when it comes to your discipleship in Christ and your, citizen, your citizenship in Christ's present and promised nation. Do you realize that? Of anything you could belong to, your highest spiritual authority is this group of brothers and sisters that you're sitting with. Why? Because God made it that way. He gave us one another for all good reasons, right? To help us grow, to encourage us during hard times, to hold our feet to the fire when it comes to what the Bible has to say. All of these things so we can be linked together so that you don't have to have all the spiritual gifts, but you can rely on the gifts of the people around you. You can exercise your gifts on and on we could go. But this is the highest authority on earth, right? When it comes to our discipleship, again, under the Lordship of Christ. Number two, when you're open your Bible, stop looking for signs of a club with its voluntary members. It's a big problem with the church today. 
That's what we think church is, church membership is. It's not. Instead, look for a Lord with his bound together, knitted together, glued together people, a family of brothers and sisters, branches on a vine. Think about the word pictures that scripture uses to define the church. Number three, a local church is a real life embassy of heaven set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and coming universal church. Think about that. This is an outpost of heaven. I know it's hard for some of you to believe, right? But the reality is it is. That's what churches are. Uh, Genuine, true, biblical churches are outposts of the kingdom. A church member, number four, is a person who has officially and been publicly recognized as a Christian before the nation, so before all the people groups of the church, as well as someone who shares the same authority of officially affirming and overseeing other Christians in the local church. And then number five, Christians don't join churches. They submit to them. To be a Christian is to belong to a church. Remember that word submission is a bad word in our culture. It's not biblically. It means to, right, lay down your rights in order to serve the greater good. It's a military term. When you join the military, right, you surrender where you're gonna live, what you're gonna eat for lunch, all of those things to your commanding officer, to the army, to the Navy. Why? So that you can serve your country. In the same way, that word picture is true of us. When we join a church, we lay down our preferences, so that we can serve as part of the body of Christ. Now, that's a higher view of church membership than most people have, but it is a biblical view. And I don't just say that because I'm the pastor, right? And it's like, you know, I lead this thing that's really important. I say it because the Bible says it and it's humbling and sobering to realize. So our application points tonight, number one, become a church member if you haven't. If you are a follower of Jesus, right? Become part of the family officially, that's important. The New Testament, there is no such thing as a believer without a church home in the New Testament. And there is, I'll argue, there should be no such thing in our world either. I love what Tony Evans says. He says, I hear people say all the time, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, But you also don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. I think it's a powerful metaphor and a good illustration. Number two, commit to be a fully engaged church member. Tom Rayner has a little book called uh, I Am a Church Member. We used to give it to new members. I don't even know if we still do, uh, but he was a member of our Brentwood campus at the time. He's now a member of a church right around the corner from us, but he has these six points, right? These commitments. I will be a fully functioning church member. First Corinthians 12, I have gifts. They need to be used in conjunction with my brothers and sisters to advance the mission of the gospel. Number two, I will be a unifying church member. They will know us by our what? Our Christian t-shirts, right? They'll know us by our website. Isn't that what Jesus said? They'll know us by our band and our worship minister with skinny jeans and tattoos. Well, not at this church, but so. No, they'll know us by our love. And so I will be a unifying church member. I will not let my church be about my preferences or my desires. The son of man did not come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life. So I won't let church be about my preferences or desires. I will pray for my church leaders. Please do. We need it. I feel it. We know you pray for us. Keep doing it. I will lead my family to be healthy church members. And so as you guide your home, as you influence your family, you will lead them to be uh, healthy church members. I will treasure church membership as a gift. It really is a gift, guys. That God gives us one another, that he doesn't ask us to do this alone. That again, even as pastor, I don't have to have all the gifts, right? Because you have some of those gifts. 
You have some of that time. You have some of that talent that I don't have. You have a mission field I don't have in your neighborhood or in your work. It's awesome. It's a gift that we have one another and that we get to do this together. Number three, understand how our church functions and pray about your level of involvement and leadership. As I've already mentioned, we are a modified congregationally led church that depends on you to pray, to nominate and select leaders, and to affirm members and key ministry initiatives. We still bring those things before you guys because we believe they're important. Lord willing, in a couple of months, we will vote across all eight campuses about launching a new work out of Station Hill in Columbia. Now, could we go do that on our own? Sure, we probably could. But why is it important that we all agree? Because the New Testament says, and they affirmed. Because we want everybody on board praying, knowing about, you know, just God, how can you use me to advance the gospel? That's why we ask that the church affirms these key things. Things like the budget, those are important. Yes, there's a procedural aspect to all of that, but the much more important part is the spiritual dimension that says, hey, we're, we're all in this together. Hey, we're moving in this direction. And if you have a concern, you need to raise it. We have town hall meetings. You know how many people come to our annual budget town hall meetings? 14. <laughs> about 14, about the same. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have a $30 million budget and 14 people come to ask questions about it. Uh, most of them honestly don't even ask questions. And a lot of them are there because they just have to be there, <laughs> to be quite honest. So either that means like you guys are all good, we're assuming that you are, or you have incredible trust in our system, which we hope that you do, or we're not quite asking all the questions we should, uh, because I think you'll actually be encouraged to see how hard our team works in preparing that budget, where that money goes, uh, how we're always trying to find ways to give more money away to missions and church multiplication and, and, and ministry partners throughout the world. But the point is, is all of that is available for you as church members to engage in that process. So please do. And if you're befuddled by it, if you have questions about it, ask. Chris Blanton has an entire job as an associate executive pastor to nerd out over those details, right? Uh, Brian Coates used to be here. He's now at the Bremen campus. Same kind of thing. Those guys are actually thrilled when somebody has a question about, hey, how does our church do this? Uh, as I look out, some of you have served on the finance ministry team, on the staff resource team uh, as a trustee uh, in the life of our church. So look around. Who, who could serve? There's lots of people who serve currently and have served as deacons uh, in this room. So constantly be asking yourself those questions. Who can I nominate? Who could I support? Who could I help raise up? Uh, for those different roles. And then number four, let me speak to this, right? Deal redemptively with any church hurt or bitter roots that keep you from being a full participant in our local church. Listen, as a pastor, I know churches are not perfect. I know this church is not perfect. But one of the things that hurts my heart the most is when I hear somebody left for X, Y, Z reason and they never even came to talk to us about it. They never asked the question why, right? So we don't wanna be that kind of church. Again, we're human, we're far from perfect. So I'm sure we have hurt, will hurt people for whatever reason, I promise it's unintentional. But if you got or know someone, right, who's hurt, if you're bringing hurt and church baggage with you, we wanna help you heal. Again, we're not a perfect church, but we wanna be a church that's like family to you. And so hear that from my heart as a pastor. And so this next statement, right, is just a reminder to all of us. The only perfect church is the heavenly assembly. And that sadly does not meet at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday, a short drive from your house. So until you're called to join that throng around God's throne, you're called to belong to a church in which others will get things wrong. And guess what? So will you. It's why we have a body. We walk together. And so Mike Glenn, our senior pastor again at Brentwood has this quote, and I do think it's strong. He says, I have some close friends, but I'm not close enough to tell any of my buddies that their wife is ugly. 
It takes a lot of audacity to walk up to Jesus and tell him that you love him, but not his church because the church is his bride. So remember that and respect that. And then number five, of course, we want you to find your place in the ministry and mission of our church. I tell you all the time, we don't go to church. We are the church. William Temple famously said, the church is the only cooperative society in the world which exists for the benefit of its non-members. You see, we don't exist because we wanna make our life in the church easier or better. We exist to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ. That's the primary function and reason we exist. Couple of great quotes there uh, by N.T. Wright and by John Stott. I'll leave those for you guys to read for the sake of time. Uh, Several resources for you to read. As you can tell, I might be a little passionate about this topic, as I am most topics. But Brian, we got a few questions tonight. I would anticipate that we do. 743, I've given two minutes, so we'll run the two minute drill. Okay. Or maybe a few more. There's one or two questions. All right. One or two. Um, All right. So the first question is, does anyone function in the role of elder at Station Hill outside of the pastoral staff? And how do the trustees play into leadership and congregational polity? Yeah. And so we're we're a modified, as you said, we're a modified Mm -hmm. congregational. We don't have elders Mm -hmm. in in Brentwood. We we would, uh, you know, you could shorthand say we officially have a single elder and a senior pastor, single elder model with modified congregational governance. Right. That's probably and that's probably the most accurate way to represent how we're governed. Yes. By the way, that's one of the big questions we've been asking, working, praying through as a governance task force is what does that need to look like? In particular, do our eight campus pastors, including our senior pastor, right? Do we put them in a more elder like role because they are pastoring a congregation, Um, but they wouldn't do it as single elders. You would see more of the plurality of elders, the eight campus pastors with the senior pastor as the chief among equals, that kind of idea. Well, and and we've, our current polity was done when we were one campus birthing Station Hill Mm because I was a trustee at that time. Correct. And so given we're a different structure now, it is certainly wise to at least review our polity. Mm-hmm. And I'm very thankful. This, this team has worked really hard for 18 months to, to biblically search and to look at us as a body and go, how does the Holy Spirit lead us here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. To be clear, we're not moving away from congregational polity. Right. We're trying to understand that role of the elder voice with the congregation's voice and what's best for us moving forward. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if this is the shorthand version, how many pages are in the full full version of the notes? I've got a notebook, yes, inch and a half thick binder in my yes. office. If you want to read it, it'll put you right to sleep. Absolutely. We can make copies. Uh, do individual churches that are part of Brentwood Baptist have any autonomy or are they fully under Brentwood Baptist? Brentwood... Uh, no, go ahead. Brentwood Baptist is a set of campuses. We are one church. Correct. That operates on eight campuses. So there aren't eight churches. Right. We are, we are all part of Brentwood Baptist Church. We just meet at different locations right. is the way you would understand that. Um, one of the issues we are addressing uh, is to try to ask the question, do all of our campuses have an adequate voice in our current structure? Now, to be clear, our trustees, our finance ministry team, our staff resource team, anyone from any campus can be nominated and selected to those roles. And we do have people uh, from the campuses, as I mentioned, many from these, and we were the first campus uh, have served in those roles. But we are large, and that is one of our concerns moving forward, even as we add additional campuses and church planning partners, um, those kind of things. Do we have adequate representation? So we're looking at some models that would give us uh, some some more representation. We do want to be careful that we don't get into like a congressional model that's like, (laughs) I'm the delegate from Station Hill, and we need better cost. 
coffee on Sunday morning. You know, right. like we're, we're trying not to go there because so you know, if you serve as a trustee, as I see like Dave back there, he's been on FMT, you serve the church at large. Right. Right, so Dave wasn't on finance ministry team trying to stump for you know more programs at Station Hill, more money for us. Although I wouldn't have minded if he did, but you know, so but that's not the point right now. You serve the church at large. That's Chris Blanton's job. <laughs> that's right. To go get more that's money right. for Station Hill. Um, comment. Thank you for point number two on page two regarding attempts to subjugate or objectify women being sinful acts by broken men. It's healing to hear it said out loud. Mm. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. Amen. Um, expand, expand on the husband of one wife view in, in divorce and marriage. That's where you said it's about polygamy and their current state um, is, is, uh, is where, that kind of, where that lands. Yeah, there are people who differ in their interpretations about husband of one wife. Um, I, I, our church, that's our interpretation of that scripture as best we know how. Uh, consulting with, again, I think the majority of evangelical theologians and, and you know, commentators on that passage of scripture in the context that it's written in. They should kind of get Brian on my team. Sure. <laughs> uh, depending on what we're doing. I'll I was going to say, what, what team? Wow, that was, yeah, was bold. Yeah, I, I, you, know, you never know. I've, I've, I've tried about anything and failed at most, so it won't be anything new. Uh, do you see the New, Tent, new Testament listing of elders and deacons as descriptive or prescriptive? Mm, I think the, it's... I would argue prescriptive because it says it, Paul writes to the elders at all of these churches. Yes. Right? So there is a designation of elder within the church. Yes. That, that piece of it is prescriptive. Prescriptive, As I said, the, the different ways they made decisions, it's descriptive of how the church functions. Right. So I guess both. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth and sola scriptura. If the Bible is the sole authority of God's word and will, is the church also? That's a misquote. The Bible does not say the church is the pillar and foundation of the faith. It says it's the pillar and the buttress of the faith. A buttress is something that supports, just like a pillar. It supports the truth. It's not the truth. Jesus is the truth. Mm -hmm. We good? That's good. All right, just be interested. Good clarification, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the three I personalities here, now I know why there aren't round tables where we can talk to each other. Oh, hey, we're actually going to have that Thanks. in a couple of weeks. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. The honest reason I would prefer round tables, just so you know, because I think it's better for note taking and all the things, but our facilities team, they do an incredible <coughs> job. And it takes about four hours to flip this room to all tables and then back. Uh, and so we don't want to put that burden on them on a weekly basis. But in a couple of weeks, we're hosting uh, all the Brentwood campuses here for our quarterly staff meeting. And they said, hey, is it okay if we lead up round tables? And I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. Because I think if I'm you, I prefer the round tables as well. Same way. Uh, this, why did Brentwood not follow the New Testament model of selecting mature members to serve as overseers? Why are more, I assume, SBC, not SBC churches uh, moving toward an elder lead? We did select mature leaders to, to be our trustees. Um, I, I know all of the initial group of trustees, and they were all mature believers. So we. We, we have been blessed. Yeah, I'm not sure about context for that yeah. comment. And if somebody has something they want to come talk to me about, please feel free uh, to do that if you know something I don't. But um, in my experience, our trustees have, have been very godly men and women uh, who have, you know, again, not perfect people. No. Um, but our system, uh, despite some of its growing pains, because again, it was put into place in 2002 when we were a single campus, we've modified language for multiple campuses. Uh, but despite being the system being a little clunky, has operated incredibly well. Uh, in order to, to grow the church to, to the point we're at. What was the second part of that one? 
There's a second part to that one. Why are more SBC churches moving toward an elder lead? Yeah, I, I think in response to the abuses of a single elder model, mm-hmm. uh, an autocratic, uh, demanding, you know, um, you know, I say everything, I make all the rules, senior pastor is the answer. They start reading the New Testament, they're like, hmm, wow, interesting. There's, there's always clearly a leader, but there's always multiple voices in leadership as well. Uh, and so I think that's a course correction uh, in some places for that. Again, the Bible doesn't say that we have to go with plurality elders or we have to be congregational. Um, and so a lot of churches that are opting for a hybrid, really, model uh, of both. Right, I, I agree. Um, if the state tells churches not to congregate, how does the church government come together to agree with the state or go against any mandates, suggestions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in our current system, right, that's, that's a decision that we would, we would bring um, to, to our trustees who represent you, the body, um, and we would make a recommendation as a pastoral team about what we needed to do. Uh, and then we would proceed accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we believe that God's laws, right, supersede the states clearly. But we also know Romans 13, God also puts governing authorities into place for a reason. Uh, and we're called to, to be under those unless, right, they violate uh, a scriptural principle. Right. Good, good answer. Uh, would it be helpful to have a plurality of elders in addition to the lead pastor to share the needs and leadership and to serve families more directly? So interesting, two dimensions to that, the things we talked about. Yes, in a sense, that's what we're talking about is how we continue to expand that kind of the eldership role in amongst our campus pastors. The second piece, though, talking about serving families, that's the role that the deacons play in the life of our church. doesn't mean that the ministerial staff doesn't serve families. We do. We model that. But that's the role of deacon. Um, and so that's why we have deacons. Here at Station Hill, we have 60 plus. Um, they do way more pastoral care than I could ever do. Uh, and so uh, visiting hospitals, being able to reach out to guests, great story. I'm not 100% sure it was a deacon who did this, but we were at DCS in Columbia today. You know, our fan ministry team has been doing a great job of ministering to the incredible need of the social workers are being crushed right now by the foster care crisis. So our people are down there serving. Uh, and one of the really cool things that I saw today was one of the DCS workers has a card from one of our deacons taped to her computer screen saying, I read this every day. This is what keeps me going. Wow. I didn't write that card. One of our men did. And so when they write those cards, our deacons write cards, they make the calls, they go to the hospitals, they do those things. And again, we help lead that as staff, um, but that's the, the deacons are there to serve, to serve our families effectively. Next is curious to understand more about the deaconess. While I don't agree with the female deacons, does the, does the term simply mean servant? Yeah, I mean, for deacon it does. It's the interpretation yes. of Romans 16 yes. is, is what, what that comes to. Yes, about. we've chosen, you know, not to use the term deaconess here, but our version of that is what we call the nurture team. Uh, we have a group of, of ladies who are organized. Many of you in this room are on that team, organized into teams uh, who help meet those needs, much like our deacons do in the life of our church. Yeah, my wife's been on that for going on 23, 22 years at this point, I think. So um, would you describe the polity of Station Hill, Pastor Elder, Congregational Governor? We're obviously modified congregational. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the decisions that the congregation is called to address? That's in our bylaws. Our it bylaws is. actually specify. All 89 pages are available yes. at stationhillchurch.com if you would like to read. read them yeah, if you're but uh, I can probably <laughs> shorthand them really quick. Um, we vote on the budget every year. Yep. Uh, we vote on the, pur- the purchase of property. Um, we vote on um, uh, major initiatives like launching a new campus. Uh, we would vote on the selection of a senior pastor uh, whenever that, that happens. 
Um, and there's fifth. Uh, well, we vote on the selection of trustees. Uh, and so you vote every year on those men and women who are going to represent you um, church-wide. How does Station Hill handle church discipline? I actually wrote the white paper for the church. You, you did. And if you listen, was it last week that last you covered week that? On church yeah, so, you, so can, yeah. You, can, you can cover that as well. But as far as the, the function goes, ministerial staff makes a recommendation to the trustees, right? And the trustees vote on that and then they bring it to the congregation. Um, if you'll remember, we've had one incident of that here at Station Hill that we had to bring before you uh, in 2016. And uh, we, we, I made a recommendation, took it to the trustees. Trustees approved it. We brought it before you after services on a Sunday morning uh, for affirmation. Uh, and um, God moved. It was a hard time, but God moved powerfully uh, during that time uh, in the life of our church. And so we tried to do things the biblical way uh, as much as possible. But there are layers when we're looking at church discipline to be sure not just, you know, I'm mad at Lee, so I'm going to make make a presentation to the trustees, right? Uh, we, we walk through a careful biblical process following the Matthew 18, yeah. um, you know, principles there. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should probably let Lee, have you done something we need to know about? <laughs> I'm going to smile. And no, not. you guys are great. Why don't we pray it? Pray Amen. Thanks for hanging with me tonight. That was a lot. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for the for scripture clarifying things, Father. And thankful for the freedom that you give, right? That, that under the Spirit's leadership, how we order things, right, comes into our purvey. And so under the leadership of the Spirit, we, we get to see these things. And so, Father, give us wisdom as we do the, as we, as we look toward our church polity, as we look toward church membership. Father, it, it, help us understand the importance of being part of a local congregation and what that means and what that says to the world, to the unbelieving world out there. Uh, change us, Father. We've certainly encountered the truth tonight. And don't let us walk out of here the same people who walked in. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you.